it doesn't really matter what you believe or what your prior opinion is. You shouldn't have such an emotional conviction to your past beliefs that it can't be overturned with new data. So I think as we learn more and more, part of innovating patient care and treatment is to understand exactly those things that are clear to us within the data and for those things where we don't have sufficient information and data to make any sort of adjustments in how we diagnose or treat, then those are lines of inquiry that we need to pursue. Have you, a loved one or a friend, been affected with Lyme disease? There are many different ways to go about diagnosing and treating Lyme incorrectly and very few ways to do it right. In this special podcast series, Scott Endicott, Dr. Ben Lockwin, and Tom Fox uncover the shortcomings in the current standards and practices and open up a dialogue about how we can better help patients with this disease. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to Episode 3 of Understanding Lyme Disease, an exploration of Lyme disease with Scott, Dr. Ben Lockwin, healthcare futurist, and Scott Endicott, an executive in healthcare who also suffers from Lyme disease. In this episode, we look at some of the conventional treatment solutions and how it usually begins with a medication doxy, and then you're off to another set of meds down the road. Thank you for listening to this most important podcast series. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for episode three and our five-part exploration. Today, is entitled A Cloud of Doxy and Away We Go, Conventional Treatment Solutions. I have with me Scott Endicott, clinical research professional, and Ben Lockwin, healthcare policy maven. First of all, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure. It's good to be here. So let me uh, just throw out the first question. We'll start with the basics. How do medical providers treat Lyme disease now? All right. Well, this is the innovation podcast, so we want to start with the current state of things, which is non-innovative. So the treatment standard at the moment typically is for adults. The antibiotic doxycycline, which is given as a 100 milligram dose twice per day, and that duration is between 10 to 21 days. So typically patients will get three weeks worth of prescription for doxycycline, a couple hundred milligrams a day. There's also amoxicillin that can be prescribed typically in children too because younger children can't tolerate doxycycline. So uh, amoxicillin would be given in some cases as a 50 milligram dose three times a day with a maximum of 500 mg per dose. And that again is usually two to three weeks. But I think having said that, what I alluded to is that the current treatment protocols have at least clinically, empirically seemed to be wholly inadequate for the population who have Lyme disease symptoms. So I had mentioned in the last episode that there was a New England Journal of Medicine article that ran in 2001 regarding a prophylactic dose of doxycycline. And before anything had occurred other than a known tick bite, that research showed that a 200 milligram dose showed some efficacy in preventing this erythema migrans rash that we talked about, the bullseye rash. Whether that is a proxy for the lack of a clinically present Lyme disease was never really looked at in that paper. And a lot of people are on a lot of different sides of this very complicated fence about that. And I think, Scott, you can jump in here and save us all. <laughs> 
it's a very complicated scenario right now because essentially you have the established infectious disease community, the academic research and physician community that's really holding firm to that high ground at this stage that says that this is how it is and this is what will work and anything else is just not only non-contributory to health restoration, but frankly, the attendant risks that come with it are not worth the downsides. And so, but you're finding now, there's a very interesting report, the HHS Health and Human Services just put together a working group that is actually looking at emergent, innovative uh, approaches. And some of those innovative approaches are ones that the Lyme specialists have been using for many years, like PICLINE antibiotics, essentially intravenous antibiotics in order to arrest very accelerated symptoms and symptoms that have taken patients to a place where um, there needs to be, you know, massive change in their health or things are going to continue to, they're going to, their disability is going to just get worse. And keeping in mind that people tend to think of Lyme's as, well, I, I get a fever, I don't feel good, things hurt for a while, I maybe get some joint pain. There's patients represented. Matter of fact, in the Health and Human Services, uh, Dr. Neil Spector is represented there as uh, he went almost seven years without being treated effectively after initial symptoms that all tracked towards what are now CDC symptoms. And he eventually required a, a heart transplant due to Lyme carditis having set in well, into the tissue of his heart which again is an established symptom diagnosis or diagnostic symptom rather. So given that the need to start thinking more broadly about the downside risks of providing PICC line antibiotics to patients who are incapacitated, who have autoimmune symptoms that are extremely progressive and aggressive is becoming a, a more and more accepted, at least for consideration. And then you can get into and Ben and I will have a probably a little sparring session at another time regarding some naturopathic type remedies, whether they be simply a means of alleviating the patient's concern that nothing's happening and providing them some control on up to maybe even having some homeopathic and naturopathic effectiveness in the patient. So keeping in mind that the Understanding of the symptoms is still very, very challenging. So very often patients are treated for fibromyalgia, for instance, when they have very significant joint disease. And there's many, many cases of fibromyalgia patients eventually being diagnosed with Lyme. Those types of autoimmune diseases, which interestingly have risen incredibly high in a very similar trajectory to how Lyme has risen since the 1975-80 sort of original identification period. So still much in the way of old school thinking, much in the way of head in the ground, feet firmly planted that really needs to be changed. But we could talk a little bit later about some of the alternatives uh, that, that go into this beyond just here's your doxycycline and hope for the best. Yeah, and I would add to that too that when you've got empirical data coming from patient case reports, coming from those who have been trying to treat patients who still report symptoms, you essentially are starting to build an evidentiary base and a new emergent hypothesis. And in those cases, it doesn't really matter 
what you believe or what your prior opinion is. You shouldn't have such an emotional conviction to your past beliefs that it can't be overturned with new data. So I think as we learn more and more, part of innovating patient care and treatment is to understand exactly those things that are clear to us within the data and for those things where we don't have sufficient information and data to make any sort of adjustments in how we diagnose or treat, then those are lines of inquiry that we need to pursue. Ben, is it insufficient data or is it a more all-encompassing problem that both you guys alluded to, feet planted firmly on the ground, we have treated this condition, disease in one way, and we're going to continue to do so, or something else going on? Ben, I think you're our resident conspiracy theorist denier, so you start out. All right. I'll just start by saying, you know, in the physics community, there's a proverb, which was forwarded by one of the pioneers in the fields over 100 years ago, but it was essentially that the theories and hypotheses that we hold near and dear today never have a chance to become overturned until the current generation of people have all died off and the next generation can proceed. So I think, to the earlier point, there is a lot of dogma that keeps us from moving forward in the face of new information, new data. And I guess to your point, Tom, more clearly, what we thought was effective treatments in the past, we've just amassed so many data points over the decades that have ensued since then, showing that the treatments are not effective for a lot of people over a long run set of cases. So we need to adapt what we're doing. Because frankly, in clinical medicine, the endpoints to show that something is efficacious are either to demonstrate improvements in how a patient feels or functions or survives. And so, sure, you can measure survivability. You can try to do measurements of patient functioning, functionality, and that could be behavioral functioning, social functioning, physical functioning. And if people keep presenting and they say, I just don't feel well, or I don't think that I'm functioning the same, those to me should have the same amount of clinical weight as saying, you know, I've got this measurable endpoint and turning a blind eye to that information from patients, I think is the wrong way to go. And if I could just add to that real quick, as we kind of explore this a little bit further, the logical next step beyond we take away from this discussion point here regarding current treatment is that it's limited, Tom, and it's insufficient for what is a, a very massively building pandemic uh, that needs to be addressed that way. And I think Ben and I would both agree on this one point that the best next steps in innovation would be in diagnostic testing that gets much closer, much dearer, and frankly puts data back to Ben's original point in the hands of clinicians that, that can know that's no longer as flexible and fungible as has been the case, right? So once a good diagnostics there that says this is absolutely the case, this is what's presented to you, please head off and take care of this patient according to this expanded protocol. Early diagnosis is going to be the best treatment no matter what. Gentlemen, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. I hope our listeners will join us tomorrow where we look at immunity as a first defense. Gentlemen, I think I'm greatly looking forward to continuing the conversation, although, I, frankly, I may be more terrified after we continue the conversation. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. <laughs> sure. Thanks, Tom. 
This is Tom Fox again. I hope you found episode three entitled A Cloud of Doxy and Away We Go informative, although perhaps after listening to it, you may believe the title of the episode should be With Our Feet Planted Firmly on the Ground. In this episode, we talk about the conventional treatments after a diagnosis of Lyme disease. And here you also see the problem that we have, which is that original treatments were with an antibiotic, usually starting with doxy. And although that is generally not harmful to a patient, it certainly is something that is perhaps not the most helpful, but that both physicians and clinicians are really mired in this original way of thinking about the treatment of Lyme disease. Ben had a really interesting observation that you don't really get a change in diagnostic treatments or even other types of scientific theories until a full generation has come in after the original assessment was made because the dogma is so great. And if you learn that basically as a guideline when you studied or from others, you're probably going to be stuck with it. And it really takes someone with a new set of fresh eyes when there's new data available. And that's the one thing that I think frustrates Ben and Scott the most is that new data has showed that many other types of treatment beyond simply antibiotics with doxy are helpful, but it's individualized to the patient. They didn't talk about this, but as we've seen during COVID-19, it's the underlying physical conditions of the patients that in many ways impact the overall effect of Lyme disease. So in addition to the misdiagnosis that many Lyme disease sufferers have early on with their condition, there is a pragmatic or dogmatic, I should say, protocol for treatment with medicines that physicians have used literally since the 60s. And this has not changed despite more recent data, which showed that other individualized treatments could be more powerful. So this episode continues our exploration of Lyme disease. I hope you will join us tomorrow for episode four, where we look at immunity as a frontline of defense.